Back in 2002, this incredible story emerged of an orphan that received a very special gift. His name was Calvin, and he was given a pair of shoes that once belonged to Michael Jordan, the GOAT, greatest of all time, MJ, you know him. Okay, so he receives the shoes, but some other children at the orphanage uh, kind of understandably got jealous about this. Some of the bullies came, took his shoes from him, tied the laces together, and launched the shoes up and over kind of like a, a telephone wire, and they landed on the wire, so he couldn't get out his shoes anymore. Not a good day. Later that evening, Calvin decides that he wants to get his shoes back. And so there's a bit of a rainstorm, a thunderstorm. He climbs a tree. He's reaching out at the telephone wire. I don't recommend this. I'm just, I'm just the messenger, okay? He reaches. He gets a hold of the shoes. And at the same time, lightning strikes the telephone pole. He gets electrocuted, falls off, lives, and he's got the shoes back. The next day, he takes those shoes and he puts them on. And when he's doing that, he, he says these words, make me like Mike. He puts on the shoes and incredibly, he is an amazing basketball player. He's got good handles, he can shoot, he dunks on the bully at the orphanage, it's very heartwarming. He actually gets spotted by someone, scouts him, gives him, oh no, no, it was a halftime show, sorry. He, he gets signed into the NBA as a young man, and even in the NBA, he's an incredible ball handler. It's this really heartwarming story. But the problem is it's, it's completely fake. This story did not happen in real life. This is actually a movie, a movie from my childhood. It's called Like Mike. And it's a very enticing story. It's very heartwarming. If you haven't seen it, there's your homework for the week. Go and do likewise. Watch the movie Like Mike. But it's a story of, okay, you know, if only it was that easy to become like Michael Jordan. You just had to put on his shoes, get a little bit of electricity, small price to pay, and all of a sudden you are like Mike. But we know that if you wanna be good at basketball, you gotta put in thousands and thousands of hours of hard work, of practice, not even just practice in general, but practicing the right way. Practice makes permanent, but good practice makes perfect. It's besides the point, you gotta probably uh, do what Mike did, eat like Mike did, wake up when Mike did. You probably gotta have a little bit of good genetics like Mike did, that doesn't hurt either. But being like Mike is not so easy. Now, when it comes to this question of um, the Christian life, we're not trying to be like Mike, we're trying to be like Jesus. I don't know if you knew that, I'm just gonna clarify that for you right now in this moment. We're trying to be like Jesus, and people also do lots of different things, some helpful, some not, when they're trying to become more like Jesus. If I wanna be like Jesus, what do I need to do? Do I need to get my mom to change her name to Mary? Do I need to grow a beard? Do I need to wear some sandals? Do I need some longer cloaks on me? I don't know what I gotta to do to pull this off. Maybe you felt this frustration, not even on the external, but on the internal, of trying to be more like Jesus. And I know that there's things I shouldn't be doing anymore, and there are things I should be doing. I should stop doing this, I should start doing this, there's some habits that I need to pick up, there's some habits that I need to drop, and I try and do it, and try as I may, nothing seems to change. Nothing seems to happen. I grit my teeth, I white knuckle it, and somehow I get more stuck and more cemented in this behavior that I was trying to change in the first place. Today we're gonna to be looking at this topic. We're going to be trying to answer this question of how does God make us like Jesus? And the answer that we're going to see is this 
this concept called discipleship. How does God make us more like Jesus? Discipleship, which will lead to a second question. How does God disciple us? How does this process of discipleship happen? And we're going to look at one of the ways that God does this is through Christian community. How does God make us like Jesus? Through discipleship. Okay, well, how does God operate this process of discipleship? Through Christian community. It's one of the, if not the primary most way that God makes us more like Jesus is through his church, his body, the family of faith. So I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 13 for today, as we learn about this relationship between the church and discipleship. For the past several weeks, we've been going through this series called We the Church, learning about what the church is. And the church is not just a place, it's a people. There was that distinction we learned, kind of the language of ecclesia, which means a gathering of people, which was what the original church was referred to as, versus this later Germanic term called Kirche, Ugh, I hate that word, which meant a building. And a lot of times we get confused between the church as a people and the church as a building. We've been learning what is the church and importantly, what is it not? The church is a people who are worshipers, for example. Four weeks ago, we looked at Christian community itself. What is Christian community? What separates it from other communities? We saw that three markings, at least three indicators of Christian community is that we share the same savior, we share the same story, and we share the same calling. And then we looked at, okay, what are some of the elements of this calling? And we looked at the church as it relates to local missions, where people who are trying to seek the welfare of the city that we're in. That's the language of Jeremiah. And then we also looked at the church as it relates to global missions, how we're sent to all the world to make disciples of them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then last week we looked at the church as a community of commitment, how we are committed to one another. And when things get difficult or challenging, we don't, we don't ghost, we don't coast, we don't just quietly peace out, but we stay in contend for the faith and for one another. And this week we're looking at church as a community of discipleship. So there's a couple questions. What is discipleship and how is it done? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. If you've been around church a lot, you hear the term discipleship and you might just glaze over. It's, it's a very churchy term. And you might just nod your heads. Yes, okay, I know, I know what this is. I know what this is. Or you've never heard about this term before. So let's start with the very basic uh, middle of the road definition of discipleship because it's not distinctly a Christian concept. So first we'll talk about what are this broadly and then specifically in the Christian faith. So this is our working definition of discipleship for today. Discipleship is the process of devoting oneself to a teacher to learn from them and become more like them. Historically, Many teachers had disciples. There was a person, some individuals wanted to learn from them. They wanted to be more like them. And so they hung around them. They spent time. They, they learned from them. They watched how they interacted. They did what they did. They walked how they walked. They wanted to emulate this person. Think of it just like a intensive mentorship process. So you look at Ancient Greece, historical figures, Plato had people who followed him, kind of his disciples. There was an academy, Plato built an academy. Also, someone like Pythagoras, we get that Pythagorean theorem. He had people in a little place and they all hung around and they learned and worked on things together. But also, not only in the Middle East, you see this, this structure, this model in India. There are gurus and teachers, people who follow them. And even in the 20th century, 
Sigmund Freud is said to have students or followers or disciples in this way. Now in the Christian context, more specifically, there are people who claim to be followers of Jesus. They are said to be his disciples. This is how Jesus refers to them. Discipleship is the process of learning through Jesus in the scriptures and following in obedience through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's two components to this, learning who Jesus is and also following in obedience. So there's kind of a cognitive and an emotive component of this. It's not just knowing the right thoughts, but it's actually living the life after Jesus does. One part is learning the truth. One part is aligning ourselves with the truth. And so we can kind of, this, the Bible doesn't draw this distinction quite as explicitly because they just refer to a disciple as someone who's accepted Christ in a moment. And then also the whole life of following Jesus is discipleship. But we can, to make this clearer, describe these two different events as your, your moment of salvation or conversion, the moment of saying, I choose to put my trust in Jesus. Faith is an act of trust. There's that moment, and then there's walking it out. Salvation occurs in a moment, but discipleship takes a lifetime. Salvation is something that God does for you, and discipleship is something that you do with God. Many, uh, and kind of in pockets of the church today, think of the Christian life only as a decision, not as a life of discipleship. But it's, it's not just a belief in Jesus, but it's living a life in light of that belief. So you, you can feel the tension already. This concept of discipleship is pushing back against some, you know, funky, weird things that have kind of fermented and evolved in some pockets of 21st century Christianity in a more um, post-religious, secular culture. There's, there's some, some silliness, some confusion that creeps in where in parts of the church, someone could say, hey, I believe in Jesus, but I don't follow him. I believe in Jesus, kind of like I believe in a historical figure, like I believe in Abraham Lincoln, or I would believe in Santa Claus, but this doesn't make much difference in how I'm walking and living out my life in this way. The challenge is, it's hard to say that you believe in Jesus when he says that he is the only begotten son of the Father sent to take on the sins of the world to reconcile us back to the Father and redeem all broken things, ultimately to reconcile and redeem all things back to himself, but he is all these things, I believe that, but I have no intention of following him, I have no intention of submitting to him, I have no intention of loving him, and I have no intention of emulating his life. Don't you feel that tension there? The, the lack of following, it might actually reveal a lack of belief in some ways. Anything less than a full turning of oneself it's kind of what repentance means, to turn. Anything less than discipleship is not biblical Christianity. It's some strange thing that's more a product of our imagination than a product of studying the scriptures. Here, let me show you this. The early church was simply known as the way. They got that title in Acts 11. They were known as the people who followed the way of Jesus. The question is, where did they learn to live like this? How did they get this power? Where did this come from? And it's from this belief in Jesus, this trust in him, and getting sidetracked into Romans, God help me, where it says that we receive the righteousness of Jesus, this right standing with God. We're reconciled with God. We're reconciled with one another. This righteousness is imputed to them. 
It's divinely imputed and divinely empowered. So let's, let's wrap up this definition part. Simply, uh, if you want to put it like this, Jesus didn't have fans. He had disciples. We can put that in present tense. Jesus doesn't have fans. He has disciples. A disciple is someone who commits not only to studying the person and work of Jesus, but by faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit, walking in obedience and living this out. That's what it means to be a disciple. Jesus says, count the cost of being a disciple. Now, that all sounds great, but where the rubber meets the road is this question of how is it done? And also, kind of, what does it look like? How is discipleship done functionally, and perhaps what are some indicators of it? Well, let's start at this high level again. The gospel creates community. We are people that God has redeemed, he has called, he's gathered for himself. In Romans 8, uh, it uses the language of adoption. We have the status of adoption, sons and daughters. And there's this language of family. We are a family of faith, people who are called by God. And because of this, this special community, it points us to the one who died for his enemies. That's Jesus. It creates relationships of service rather than selfishness. If Jesus gave his all for me, then I'm free to give myself for you. That's number one. Because it removes both fear and pride, because of the humility and trust of Jesus, people get along inside of the church who never got along outside of it. I'll touch on that later. Because it calls us to holiness, holiness means being set apart, I want to be more like Jesus, I want to grow in him, then the people of God live in loving bonds of mutual accountability and discipline with one another. Because guess what? I want to be more like Jesus. And if that means that I need to open up with you, if I need to allow you to speak into me in some of these ways, then so be it. That's one of the markings, this radical vulnerability. Thus, the gospel creates a human community, a society, a culture, or a kingdom, as the New Testament calls it, radically different from any other society around it. A Christian community, it's more than just a supportive fellowship or a social group. It is an alternative society. It is an alternative culture. It's an alternative community, completely different than the world around it. And it is through being in this alternative community, living in this, being members of it, walking alongside together, that God not only transforms us, but the world around it. There's always this, this uh, not reciprocal, this two-sided relationship of it. You can see uh, even in the early church, early church, Acts 2, it says they had all things in common, gathering together, dedicating themselves to the teaching of the apostles, having all things in common. If anyone had need, they would sell their possessions and give to them. So they're dedicating themselves to the teaching, and this overflows in how they treat one another. Join me on a brief caveat. Here are at least five distinctive features of the early church, five things that were noticed by the culture around them. Firstly, they were incredibly diverse. They were the most diverse gathering of people groups. So people from different races, from different backgrounds, with historical tensions, gathered together under the banner of Christ because they had the same Savior and they had the same story. That's Ephesians 2. When Christ rose, he made one man out of two. Incredibly diverse. Men and women, people of different socioeconomic backgrounds, all gathered in the church. It was incredibly diverse, more diverse than any other group you would see around. Number two was 
they were known for their generosity. The early church was incredibly generous. These people uh, were free from the love of money and they were free to love others through their money. You either love money and you'll use people to love money or you love people and you'll use money to love people. There's actually a, a Greek statesman and general. He's very famous. Uh, he gets talked about in some of the dialogues of Socrates. His name is Aristides. Aristides. We're going to call him Aris guy. He wrote this talking about Christians. He was not a Christian. They abstain from all impurity in the hope of the recompense that is to come in another world when there is among them a man that is poor and needy. And if they have not abundance of necessities, they fast for two or three days that they may supply the, need, the needy with the necessary food. Such is the law of the Christians and such is their conduct. People from the outside saw, hey, if anyone had need, they gave to them. And if they had nothing to give, they wouldn't eat for several days until they had something that they could give. How ridiculously countercultural is that even today? I'm ashamed to say I've been in the church my whole life and I see that and I think that is incredibly countercultural, even to the, the, the culture that I know. Would God, would God make us more like this? So they were diverse. They were generous. The early church was also known to be non-retaliatory. They were incredibly peaceful. If you murdered one of them, they wouldn't come back to try and murder one of you. If you burned down their buildings, they weren't going to come and try and burn down yours. They were known for being peaceful. And the last two, uh, they were known to be incredibly pro-life, if you want to put that in today's language. Things like abortion and infanticide were practiced even in kind of the ancient world, abortion was much more dangerous of a process than it is today. So what was more common was infanticide. If you had an unwanted child, they would usually terminate the child's life after birth or simply leave them out with the garbage. My younger sister, she was adopted and she was found in the garbage dumpster. And Christians were people known for not thinking that certain people have more value than others. They didn't believe in any gradations of human life, but believed that all people were image bearers of God, and all people there have intrinsic worth and value. We just take that for granted. That was a revolutionary idea in the ancient world. And so they saw that all people had value, and they were incredibly pro-life, and would meet the needs of people however they were. If this was an elderly person and they had needs, they would meet it there. If this was an abandoned child, they would bring in the child. They put their money where their mouth was. And the last one, I'm off topic now, was that they led a sexual revolution. They actually led the very first sexual revolution in this way. Because in the Roman world, sex was simply seen as an appetite that was to be met for self-gratification. So men in particular, even if married, could have relations of this form with anyone they wanted to, and they did. So men with men, men with women, men with boys, men with girls, anyone of a higher social status could demand this of anyone with a lower social status. And Christians said, counterculturally, that sex was not just for self-gratification, but it was for self-giving. And not even an emotional self-giving, but it was actually for, um, you would only relate to someone this way if you had given your whole life to them. This was a, it was like a sacrament, like a sacrament, in that it was a visible sign of an invisible reality. 
So they were incredibly diverse, incredibly generous, incredibly peaceful. They had a high value of life and they led the very first sexual revolution. Now to bring this back, if you think about your own life, just like one of the most formative experiences in your life is belonging to a family, so too, is one of the most formative elements of our spiritual life belonging to a spiritual family. You think in in your life, if if you ever do like some kind of premarital counseling or marriage counseling, a lot of the questions that they led um, Rebecca and I through was looking at how your family and your background shaped some of your experiences, your expectations and your approaches to how do you handle money? How do you interact with people? What are appropriate forms and inappropriate forms of interacting with people, of conflict resolution? What's what's the amount of time that we use for this or this? How do you talk about chores? How do you talk about money? How do you talk about fighting? How do you talk about healing in this way? And if we, we think that we're not only formed by just sitting and receiving information didactically, but in a comprehensive, formative way of life by seeing our exemplars and our role models, then accordingly, one of the chief ways that we should disciple people and be discipled, that we should be formed in the image of Jesus, is through community. Community shapes the development of our character. If you think of a classroom, a teacher and a student, they do have a type of relationship, but they don't eat together, live together, additional contact with one another, socially, emotionally, or spiritually. But we don't find a classroom relationship between Jesus and his students. Indeed, he created a community of learning and practice in which there was plenty of time to work out the truth as they dialogue, as they disagree, and as they work it out in application. And if we look at how Jesus lived, this example would kind of show to us too that we best learn and apply what we are learning in small groups and among friends, not only in academic settings alone, but the people with whom we eat, with whom we play and have fun, with whom we converse, counsel, and study. And if we look at this then, we can, we can look at all of the one another language of the Bible in this aspect of Christian community, in discipleship. So all this language of how, we're, how we ought to interact with one another can be part of our discipleship. If we understand discipleship as how we relate to one another, we can look at this. We are to honor one another, accept, bear with, Forgive, cheer and challenge, warn, stop gossiping and slandering, teach one another, stop being fake with one another, bear burdens, share possessions, submit to each other, pray for and confess our sins to one another, admonish and comfort one another. If you wanted to summarize this in one verse, Hebrews 3, 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. Exhort, which just means to encourage someone, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Help people grow. Exhort them, encourage them in all of these ways so that we may be free from the hardening and deceitfulness of sin. So this kind of shows us the other side of the coin now. What's the danger of if we don't do this? if we aren't walking in discipleship actively with all these one another's. So now we're getting to to Matthew 13, where Jesus actually talks about some some of the dangers of this in the Christian life. So would you read with me verses one to nine? That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. 
and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they weathered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And I love that right after this, <laughs> Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples come up and say, hey, Jesus, uh, <laughs> um, don't, don't quite get it. Could you explain that to us a little bit? Maybe they came up and said, hey, Jesus, some of the people over there, you know, didn't quite get it. Um, I explained it to them. I just wanted to make sure I did it right. Could you, could you tell me what you were talking about back there? Either way, Jesus explains the parable now. In verse 18, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. It's person number one. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet, has, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness, deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. We've got four types of soil here. The first one is simply... The, the person of, of hard ground, the seeds fall, but they can't take root because the soil is hard. And this is kind of the person whose heart is hard towards spiritual things, spiritual realities, spiritual conversations. This is the person who's not really in the place to receive it, to talk about it, to consider it. And so this is the person that we simply need to pray for and ask that God would soften the soil, that he would soften their heart. We don't write them off, but we pray that God would prepare their hearts, that they would be in a place to hear and receive this. That's person number one. The second person, the second type of soil that we see is something that as followers of Jesus, we need to be really concerned about and open to the possibility of happening. I've seen this happen broadly in my life and even particularly in the local church. The first illustration that he's using where followers of Jesus need to be paying attention in our theology and in our doctrine, in our walk and in our discipleship is the idea of someone who hears the word, receives it with joy, and yet when difficulty arises, when there's persecution, tribulation, the sun comes out and scorches and kills their faith. This is the person who receives the gospel. When times get hard, they shrivel up and die because their faith has no root. This is the first danger of disciples having no real root or depth, and it gets exposed in hard times. And one of the reasons this can catch us off guard is whether we've been explicitly taught this or not, I think many of us hold this belief in our heart, this quasi-prosperity gospel, to think that we've lived in such a way where we deserve the blessings of God, 
that I've been a good person, that I, I've come to church, hey, I even, I even gave that one time. This shouldn't happen to me. This should happen to people who've lived a bad life. Have you, have you seen my neighbor? God, have you seen my, my colleague? Have you seen my in-law? Have you seen my boss? Yeah, you, you should send some thunder and lightning their way, but, but I've been a good person. I don't deserve this. This idea that following Jesus means that we will live in this earthly, blissful state of happiness, health, and wealth is so appealing, but it is absurd and found nowhere in the scriptures. If anything, Christians should not be described by tribulation and difficulty because the Bible's full of it. Who gets through? Who, who gets out on the other side without hurt, without heartache, without betrayal, and without suffering? Let's just, let's just do a little light purview, a cruise of scripture. Start with Jesus himself. Betrayed, mocked, beat, whipped, punched, spit on, and crucified. Crucifixion is where you slowly drown from the inside out after they drive nails through your hands and your feet. That's number one. Think of Moses, Big Mo, wanders in the desert for 40 years with grumbling and complaining church folk. Thankfully, Christians in the church have changed since then, but he had to wander in the desert for 40 years. He finally gets to the promised land and he doesn't get to go in. He doesn't get the inheritance. Think of Jeremiah. Jeremiah goes into exile with Israel despite that he pleaded with them to repent and believe. John the Baptist, he's beheaded. Jesus says, there is no greater born among man than John the Baptist. And he got his head cut off after he was in prison. Paul, at his conversion, it was said of him by Jesus, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And he gets repeatedly beaten, thrown into prison. He had the hard work not only of planting churches, but then after the fact, false teachers would come in and undermine everything he's done. He was several times left for dead. They beat him so much they thought he was dead and they left him. He was shipwrecked twice. The second time he was shipwrecked, he actually gets to shore eventually. He's trying to make a fire and he gets bit by a snake. I don't know if I would have thrown him the towel there. You're shipwrecked, you got into land, the viper chomps you. I would think, come on, I'm done in this way. So he doesn't die from the viper, finally gets to Rome and he gets beheaded. Peter, he's crucified upside down. John uh, is said to be boiled alive by the Romans, but he doesn't die and that kind of freaks him out. That's how tradition goes. So he was exiled and sent onto the island of Patmos, Patmos. Who else do you want? Pick a man or woman. Living in a broken world should not make us surprised by the presence of hardship and trial and persecution. The idea that giving your life to Jesus means a life of comfort and ease is deadly to our discipleship and the faith. Now, although it shouldn't surprise us, what we do see in the Bible, okay, to be a little bit more comforting, is that it's okay for us to shake us. We shouldn't be surprised, but we can be shook. It can still sting. That's okay. But here's what Paul says, that when it comes to the sorrows and brokenness of the world, that we are perplexed, but not crushed. That we are confused, hurt, and perplexed, but not broken, because we know that God can sustain us. And we can have the honesty and humility to admit that this is where we're at, this confuses me, that this hurts me, that this stings. But in discipleship, if we have the honesty to admit this, we can have the depth of roots, we can have the depth of community to be perplexed and not crushed. 
People who say, I love Jesus, but the pain and difficulty of this world made it difficult to trust God. If you've been through this season, you can admit this, or you can ad you not admit it. You can try and isolate yourself. Here's, here's the other side of this. We can step away, we can hide this, our confusion, our pain, and our suffering, and that's where faith goes to die. Satan loves an isolated Christian. But the invitation is to say, hey, this is hard. I don't get it. I'm confused right now. I'm wrestling with this. And this is Paul saying this, someone of robust faith, and he can st still say this. So one of the things that can rob us from following after Jesus is not having deep roots, not being connected to one another, but being theologically thin. But in our community with our brothers and sisters, we can hang on to the words of God by being good and true and right. The next warning that we see, it's not someone who's shriveled up by the sun, but we need to be mindful for is what he says, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And this process isn't immediate, but he says it's actually a choking that happens. I don't know if you've been choked out before. Let me, let me describe it to you. Um, actually, we have a volunteer. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> being, be, being choked out, it's very different than being knocked out. If you haven't been knocked out before, it's instantane, instantaneous. It's bang, it happens fast. But when you're choked out, it happens slowly. I mean, if it's a tight choke, it can still take probably like three Mississippis. But when you're choked out, your brain is deprived of oxygen, either by cutting off blood circulation or by disrupting the airflow. And a choking out happens, usually in the first couple seconds, when, when it's happened to me, I thought, I'm okay, I feel pretty good right now, I'm all right, and then boom, everything just goes dark. And you wake up a few seconds later, what happens to me? And Paul says that there's something that can happen over time, without us noticing, that will cut us off of everything that brings us life. And what does he say about this? He's talking about the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. He's not talking about trials and persecution, which can lead to a, a quick spiritual death. But over time, we can be subdued and rendered spiritually unconscious without even knowing it. Matt Chandler, uh, he puts it like this. He says, here are three questions that someone asks when they're being subdued by the cares and worries of the world. He says this, these three questions. How do I control this? How do I manage this? And how do I manipulate this to my will? This is someone who's asking questions that is being taken over, choked out by the concerns and cares of the world. So, you feel the pressures of this world. There's things going on, maybe challenges. Maybe it's something terrible. Maybe it's something petty, actually. We feel the pressure of it and mingled with our insecurities and our fears. We feel the pressure and rather than trusting in God, we lean it, we jump into action. We lean in, we try and control this, manipulate this. I wanna be sovereign over my circumstances. And it's a trap because the more anxiety you feel, the more you claw for control and the more you claw for control, the more anxiety you feel in this way. It's a downward pit. We can't control other people. We can't control our circumstances. What might give us peace is actually casting our cares on the God who can control these things. Now, what's the link between the need for control and the deceitfulness of wealth and, and uh, riches? Why would he tie these two together? Well, think about it. What makes us feel most secure and in control? Money. It's true, right? How, how much do we feel like we're in control of our circumstances when we got an extra, extra bit of money in our pocket, when we got some cash in the bank? If you're a student watching this, you might think, um, I don't know, sure, hypothetically, that sounds great in this way. But you don't have to be crazy rich for this to be true. There is a trust in the Lord that he is gonna provide 
which vanishes when you feel like you can provide for yourself. I'm not saying that wealth is a bad thing. I'm not saying you should feel guilty if you have wealth. But the danger here is money being our Lord and not Christ. That's the danger. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You will serve one and neglect the other. You can't serve both God and money in this way. So use your money well. Save it, invest it. I'm not saying that. But our security isn't in our nest egg. We're not subject to our funds. We're subject to the one whom our money is subject to in this way. And if you aren't clear about this, you can slowly be choked out. This is a sin. This is a way of living which leads to death, which we can slowly be pulled into. No one drifts towards obedience in this way, which is why we live in a community. This is why we live together in Christian fellowship, encouraging one another, spurring each other on. Here's something interesting to think about. You are God's appointed means to keep your brother or sister from falling into sin. Let's, let's kind of land the plane now. Let's wrap this up. A good way that I've heard this stated, I think Andy Stanley puts it like this. He says this, circles are better than rows. You think in a congregation on a Sunday morning, you sit in rows, but circles are better than that. You sit in a circle around a table. You sit in a circle around a campfire. You sit in a circle in a living room or a rectangle or in a dorm room. This is where life is lived. This is where our hopes and our dreams and our hurts are shared in this way. What circles do you operate in? Even when you see Jesus, he had uh, his hundreds, he had his 12, and he had his three. There were hundreds of people that followed him. There were 12 disciples that he chose to live life with, and there were three people in his inner ring. Who are your three? Who are the three in your inner ring? He had Peter, James, and John. And then he had his 12. Who are your 12? At Bayview, We've tried to, to replicate this with our structures of discipleship. We have our hundreds, that's our Sunday gathering. And your 12, roughly, that's your life group. That's people that you gather with weekly, that we're breaking bread, that we're being sent with, that we're being going into all the regions, being the hands and feet of Jesus. Hands and feet, pardon me, hands and feet of Jesus. But we also have our huddle. That's our two or three. These are the people that we're we're texting, we're calling, we're saying, hey, I'm, I'm wrestling with this, I'm struggling with this, can you encourage me in this way? There's three people in my life, three men, that I've kind of given a, an open season pass on. This is open season on Sawyer, that you have permission to speak into my life, even if I don't ask you to, that if you see something, you're allowed to say in love, hey brother, I think God has better things for you than this. I think you're better than that. I think you've been set free from this. You don't have to walk in that baggage, that bondage anymore. You're liberated from that. Who are your three? Who are your 12? Who are the people in your life that you've given this past to? And there's a challenge with this because proximity requires intimacy. We're called to live our life together, to have all things in common. Proximity requires intimacy though, because you're gonna be all around me. You're gonna be up in my business. You're gonna see some of my junk. You're gonna smell my stink. Proximity requires intimacy, but intimacy requires vulnerability. Because you're not going to be around Super Sawyer anymore. You're not going to see that cape. You're going to see some of my, my, my chinks, the cracks in my armor. There's going to be some vulnerability. And vulnerability requires humility. I'm going to have to admit, hey, I'm, I'm not quite perfect. I'm, I may not be the guy you see on screen or on the stage. Um, I'm, I'm a work in progress. But the truth is this. You can't heal from what you won't reveal. So some of the questions for us today are this. 
Um, where in our life are we perhaps neglecting the great gift of discipleship that we have in Christian community? Who are these people in our life that God has placed around us? Are we leaning into them? How can we exhort them? How can they exhort us? Are people leaning in and trying to encourage us in some way? And are we, are we not receiving it? Are we not walking in faithfulness? Or are there people in your life that you can say, hey, can, can you help me as I walk with Jesus? Can you encourage me? Can you exhort me? And guess what? If there's something that you need to bring to my attention, I give you permission to. Because I, I want to be like Jesus more than I want to stay in my own state. So these are some of the questions for us today. Maybe reflect on this and respond in faith and humility and trust to how the Spirit is speaking to us this day. Now, church, let's continue in worship.